Revelation chapter 3, we're going to look at verse 14. And we're looking at the very last of the seven churches. It feels like just yesterday we started preaching about those seven churches. And we're already on the seventh church. Bless God, next week we'll be in heaven. Amen? And the Lord might come and he might bring us to heaven there. But we'll be talking about heaven next Sunday, Lord willing. And I'm looking forward to chapters 4 and 5 and seeing some glimpses of heaven and some wonderful things there in heaven. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Here's what I want you to do tonight. At home with your family, would you read out loud together as we read chapter 3? You listen to me read, but you read out loud and stay right with me. Revelation chapter 3, we're going to read verses 14 to 22. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Do you notice verse 14? Of all the churches Jesus wrote to, these seven churches, the first six he described as to a church in a specific location, Philadelphia, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamos, Smyrna, Ephesus. He referred to a church in a specific city. But notice here, he talked about the people of the church, the church of the Laodiceans. And he made a statement in chapter 3. He said, because thou sayest, 
Thou art rich. And by the way, if you live in the United States, you're rich compared to many other parts of the world. Because thou art rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. I'm going to preach you a message tonight that's a question. And sometimes we use this phrase in a sarcastic manner. We just get kind of frustrated or agitated with people. The title of the message is, Who Cares? Who Cares? I think about my father when he was, after he had a stroke, sometimes we talked to him. And uh, because he kind of messed with his brain a little bit, he sometimes would just say, Who cares? But that's really the attitude of America. And unfortunately, maybe the attitude of the 21st century church. Who cares? Who cares? Tonight we want to look at this church that Jesus loved. And he said right here that he loved them. And how to go from an attitude of who cares to the attitude, yes, I do care. Father, this evening, you are holy and just and righteous. You're immortal, invisible, the only wise God. To whom alone is glory and honor forever and ever. I so pray this evening that you'll be exalted and lifted up. I pray for the fullness of the Spirit. I confess all weakness and inadequacy, powerlessness and insufficiency tonight. And regardless, Lord, of how long we've been saved, our Bible knowledge, our securities and insecurities, I pray this evening that we'd have a teachable heart and spirit. Help some who are new to the faith, have an understanding of what's being said tonight. Help those of us who've read this passage many times. To see the freshness and the meaning and the urgency and the passion of our Lord behind this message. We so need this tonight. We pray this of you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus said unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. We look at these seven churches up until we get to the Laodicean church. The only one of the churches that we were familiar with before, before Revelations 2 and 3 were written was the church at Ephesus. In fact, the church at Ephesus, we have it mentioned there, this first mentioned in the book of Acts, eight, chapters 18 and 19. Phenomenal church. We find, it, we find a book written about, in fact, an entire epistle that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. We find that the church of Ephesus was the church that John the Apostle pastored in one period of time. And I believe most of what we have in 1 John, if not all of what we have in 1 John, was written to that congregation, possibly even 2 and 3 John. And we find that in Revelation chapter 2, the very opening letter that Jesus gives to this church at Ephesus, so we have a familiarity of that church, but we get to Smyrna, 
and Pergamus and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia. We're kind of scratching our heads as we study this passage and we're thinking, who are those churches? And we know that they're all churches that were established in Asia Minor, most likely during the time when men were, got on fire for God and went out of Ephesus and the word of God spread throughout all of Asia, or Asia Minor specifically, now today known as modern-day Turkey. And the church of the Laodiceans, or the church of Laodicea, was not a new church, was not a new location. It was mentioned before. If you know your Bible, the church of Laodicea is mentioned by Paul in Colossians chapter 4. In fact, four times he refers to the church at Laodicea. Laodicea was in an area called the Lycus Valley. It was a wealthy valley, prominent area was part of a region called Phrygia. Men of Phrygia got saved on the day of Pentecost. We read about that in Acts chapter 2. Some of those men that got saved, like another place like Antioch, they went back to Phrygia with the gospel message. And we don't know if those men were instrumental in helping these churches get started there, but we do know that they carried back with them what they had received at Jerusalem. Paul made the journey in Acts chapter 18, verse 23, I believe, and ministered there in Phrygia. And I believe that could include it this church here we're talking about. Laodicea was in what we would call a tri-city area. This tri-city area consisted of the city of Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul told those believers at Laodicea, he said, I want you to know the great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea. He was concerned for their spiritual growth. He was concerned because of some issues going on at Colossae and Laodicea. Paul loved those brethren. He told the brethren at Colossae to salute the brethren at Laodicea. Paul had a visitor when he was imprisoned. And that visitor was, I believe, the pastor at the church at Colossae. His name was Epaphras. And Epaphras was a good man. Epaphras was a godly man. Epaphras is a model of a praying man. Epaphras was a great pastor. I read about him, I get challenged in my faith and in my ministry. The Bible says that we believe that Epaphras, at the time Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, that Epaphras was with Paul. And Epaphras, instead of being impressed by Paul, and I believe he was, I think Paul was more impressed by Epaphras. And he spent one verse talking about Epaphras' prayer life. How he labored fervently his prayers for the church at Colossae that they would stand perfect, complete, in all the will of God. He talked about uh, Epaphras being their minister and the servant of God. But he also mentioned about Epaphras having a great zeal for the churches at Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. You get a chance, I believe it's in Colossians 4.14 or 4.13, he talked about Epaphras has a great zeal for you. That's an important phrase. Because Paul's going to capitalize on that later on in our chapter tonight. I can't prove this. 
Now, I'm not sure we have documentation to prove this, but I have this sense in my heart by how Paul wrote this and studying this passage of Scripture. It could very well be that Epaphras may have pastored three churches. Now, I don't believe he lorded over the flock. I think from his prayer life and everything Paul said, I do not believe this man lorded all over the flock. I don't think he was a control freak. I do believe, though, that the Bible says he had a great zeal for the believers at Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. Hey, it, could very well, it very well could be that those three churches started at the same time. It could very well be that those men who went from Asia and went to Colossae, that through that process, that, that Epaphras became the pastor of the church at Colossae. And it could be that Laodicea and Hierapolis were church plants because uh, out of the church at Colossae. Now again, I can't document that, and I don't want you saying that's gospel truth because we have no way of documenting that or verifying. I'm just telling you by conjecture on my part, it very well could be. This church in Laodicea was a strategic church. It was a key center for banking and exchange. That church, Laodicea, if you would, that city, was kind of the Fort Knox of Turkey. It was known for the abundance of its gold reserves. It was a wealthy city. I mean, today, we have this COVID-19, which has affected our economy and the Federal Reserve is just pumping money back in the economy. And the president has requested $2.3 trillion. And, and I don't know about you, but there's so many zeros and trillion, it's pretty big, amen. To pump it into the economy, and they realize that that's not enough. And so they're asking for more money. And the church of Laodicea was kind of like that, except they didn't have to rely on a Federal Reserve to pump money. They had the gold to back it up. There was a great earthquake that destroyed the city many years before this was written. And the city was so financially independent, they rebuilt their city out of their own reserves and did not rely on the Roman Empire or anybody else to help them out. That's pretty good. It was a key center for clothing and fashion. It was the fashion center of, of the world. That area of the world, at least. They were known for raising a special sheep that had produced a certain black wool. This black wool was favored for making expensive and fashionable clothing. People knew Laodicean wool. It was a key center for medicine, medical research, and it was specifically known for a special powder that was used as a salve for eye diseases, eye infections, and visual ailments. Now, when I think about this city, I think about cities in the United States very similar to this. Fashion, financial center, medicine. I mean, we live in the heart of San Francisco. It's a place of fashion. Financial center, medicine. We've got Stanford on one end, UCSF on the other, two leading centers of excellence. 
But what you notice in the middle of all this was a, a local New Testament church. A church like every church that had a good start. Had a fiery start. It was a gospel preaching church. It was a church that it was on fire for God at one time. But our Lord who knows the churches had to visit with the church at Laodicea. And he told John, I want you to write them a letter. And he said, what I want you to write to them in verse 14, he says, I want all the churches, verse 22. I said, he said, I want, he says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirits say to the churches. Hey, what God said to these seven churches at, at Asia Minor is still a message today for the 21st century church. As we look at our message tonight, notice in verse 14, we see the Lord who is credible. I want to tell you tonight as we think about this Resurrection Sunday and Easter Sunday, the credibility of our faith rests in the fact we have a risen Savior, amen? The credibility of our faith rests in the fact that His remains and His DNA and His corpse is not rotting and decaying and is fully decayed and their bones in that, that tomb there, there in Jerusalem. I want to tell you tonight, it's an empty tomb. Jesus rose again from the dead. We have a credible faith, a credible Lord. And Jesus personalizes this message as he did with all the other churches in giving emphasis and significance to his attributes. And by the way, we should give significance and emphasis to the attributes of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? And he starts off by saying, these things saith the amen. And you notice, first of all, his credibility, he's the amen. Amen means truth. Whenever you see in the Bible, verily, verily, don't get tired of that. Verily, verily is also translated amen. Verily, verily also means truth. Don't, don't ever get tired of that. That's why I love the riches of the King James Version translation, because it emphasized when Jesus said, Verily, verily, I send you, except a man be born again. He's saying, what I want you to know is truth. And when he says it twice, he's saying, it is truth, and it's real truth. Listen, this evening, you ought to be thankful tonight. We have the truth in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 65, verse 16, if you look at your notes, it turn there tonight. It's a wonderful verse, and I look forward to preaching that as we go through our series on Sunday morning from Isaiah. He says that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. The word truth there is the word amen. And he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. And notice this phrase, because the former troubles are forgotten. Because they are hid from my eyes. Hey, the word amen means so be it. 2 Corinthians 1.20 reminds us of all the promises of God in him are yea and in him. Amen unto the glory of God by us. Brother and sister Christ, he's the amen. That's why I like being, I love, I love all belonging to a Baptist church. That's why I believe in being a Baptist. That's why I believe Baptist is Bible and Bible is Baptist. Why? Because Baptists like to say amen. Baptists realize when they say amen, they realize they're identifying with Jesus Christ. They realize when they say amen, they're identifying with his convictions. They're identifying with his doctrine. They're identifying with his word. They're identifying with his deity. They're identifying with his church. They're identifying with his mission. He is the amen tonight. But he's not just the amen, he's the almighty. The Bible makes an interesting statement here in verse 14. Would you notice Jesus said here? He's the amen. He's the truth. He's the faithful and true witness. 
He does not exaggerate. He does not fabricate and he does not truncate. And as he says that, he leads into, there's a comma there, and the second of his attributes that he mentions that speaks of his credibility is that he's almighty. And he uses the phrase, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, if you're not careful in your interpretation, you might read that and say, oh, that means Jesus was created. No, he was not created. What it means there is that he's the source and origin of all creation. That's what it means. And to understand that, you've got to go back to Colossians 1. Listen, why did Jesus say that? Well, when you study the book of Colossians, during that New Testament period of time, there were many churches, Ephesus and Colossians and Colossae, most likely the church at Laodicea, that were affected somehow by a false doctrine known as Gnosticism. And this false doctrine, Gnosticism, basically believed this. There were books written on but basically I'm going to boil it down to this. It believed that all flesh is evil and sinful. And so therefore, if all flesh is sinful and evil, Jesus Christ could not be God. Because if he took on human flesh... He had a sinful nature. And I'm here to declare to you, that's why we have the deity of Jesus Christ. He had no sin. He entered this world by way of a virgin birth. He had no sin nature. He was the second Adam far above all men. And so when Jesus mentions the beginning of the creation of God, he wants us to understand. He's almighty God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. All things were created by him. And without him was not anything that was made. The emphasis on his creation. You go to Colossians chapter 1. It speaks about him being the creator of all things. That in all things he might have the preeminence. I'm just saying tonight, Jesus Christ is almighty. He is creator God. He is commander God and bless God. He is completely God tonight. World situations do not change who he is. Shifting church values do not change who he is. The new idea on the street, some other cockeyed thing that these people come up with, it does not change who he is. He is still almighty God. So he's the Lord who's credible. And he had to establish this before he's going to come out and tell us about the Lord and his condemnation. Because Jesus is giving an authentic message. And Jesus is giving an authoritative message. He's the authority of the church. If you believe that, send an amen just right now. He's the authority of the church. He's the Lord of the church. And as we look at this church at Laodicea, our Lord does not give any commendation of this church. No commendation, but he gives a condemnation of this church. Wow. I don't want Jesus giving a condemnation of Heritage Baptist Church. I hope you don't either. I don't want Jesus giving a condemnation of my life and your life. We ought to think in terms of, of eternality. And we need to think in terms of eternity. Not think in terms of tomorrow. 
and not think in terms of the temporalness of this world. We need to think in terms of eternity. But I'm telling you tonight, I do not want the Lord to say something to me that's of a condemning nature about my life or my character. <clears throat> and I said this Wednesday night on our stories on 1 Corinthians. There are times when Paul and our Savior Jesus Christ are very direct in their message. And we live in a time, either because of culture or convenience, the average person, including Christians today, do not like a message that's direct. They shun it. They try to avoid it. Our Lord is direct. Notice in verse 15, he talks about the state of the church. The state of the church. I know thy works. Now he said that to other churches. But as this passage unfolds, I want you to understand, he's talking about the entirety of the works. Now you listen to me tonight as you're, many of you here tonight who are watching are involved in ministry. He knows our AV, media, and visual ministry works. He knows our works as ushers. He knows our works in HBC Cares. He knows our works as a choir. He knows our works as an orchestra. He knows our works throughout Sunday school. He knows our works in the staffing of the nursery. He knows our works in our soul winning outreach. And I'm looking forward to getting back out, door knocking, getting back out, being major evangelists. He knows our works on special emphasis days. He knows our works among the community. He knows our works to the children. He knows our works to the language groups of our church. He knows our works to the adults. He knows our works to the teenagers and the college students. He knows our works in every area. He knows our works with our buses and our vans. He knows our work in the area of administration. He knows our work in the area of follow-up. He knows our work in the areas of discipleship. Listen, I can sit down tonight and take 35 of our ministries and tell you tonight, he knows our works. He knows what we can do. He knows what we can't do. And he knows what we won't do. I know thy works. And then he makes a phenomenal statement, which you notice verse 15. He said, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. Now before he told them what they were, directly, he told them directly what they were not. He said, on one end, you're not frozen, but on the other end, you're not fiery. The word for cold has the idea of something literally chilly, icy, frozen. I'm getting a craving for ice cream right now as I think about that, you know? He says, you're not fiery. You're not coals burning on a fire at its full brim. You're not a fire that's a bonfire that's raging. 
He said, you're neither cold nor hot. The word for hot is the word zestos. We get our word zest from that. And then he said, I would. This is interesting. This is Jesus saying this. I would that thou were cold or hot. Now, why don't you you process it for just a minute? He said, now if you want my opinion, you want to know what I think about you, your works, I wish you either frozen or you're on fire. And I think he said that because he can thaw out somebody who's frozen. And I think he said that because somebody who's Incredibly fiery and zealous, sometimes you've got to tone down their fire a little bit, but that's okay. Some of us who've been around a little bit here, you might remember the days you were overzealous. Somebody tapered you down. They poured cold water on your zeal. And so now you're at this place where you know a little bit more and you're a little bit older and a little bit more calmer about things. And, and, uh, and so you see some young person come out or somebody else who's got a little more zeal than you and you want to calm them down a little bit. You know, it's easier to calm somebody down than it is to get them on fire. Yeah. I would that thou wert cold or hot. Hey, what are you? What are you? Are you taking notes right now? What are you? Cold or hot? But Jesus said, thou art neither. Now I want you to understand, this is the church of the Laodiceans. He called a business meeting there. He said, I'm coming in, I'm having a business meeting, but this business meeting is not going over finances, and this business meeting is not talking about a building program, and this business meeting is not talking about changes to our Constitution. In this business meeting, I want to tell you the state of the church. And he said in verse 16, so then, because, would you notice the next three words, thou Art lukewarm. Lukewarm's in the middle. We use the term tepid to describe lukewarmness. How many of you have ever been in a building and you didn't bring water with you? So you look in this public building for a water fountain and you're hoping the water's cold. I think of airports sometimes. And you press the button to get the water and it's lukewarm. It's room temperature. Now I know about you, I'm not extremely fond of lukewarm water. I like it hot or cold. After I preach, 99% of the time, I order hot water or I pour or boil some hot water because I drink hot water is better for my voice. I will not drink lukewarm water and I try to avoid ice cold water because I don't want to ruin my voice. How many of you 
out there are like me. You're a coffee addict. Amen? I believe coffee addicts will be in heaven. Amen? I don't believe it's a sin. I believe coffee is a great thing. I like strong coffee. I like bold coffee. I'm trying to give you a hint what to get me when church reassembles. Amen? I love it when some of our folks come from, from, uh, from Central America and South America, or they come from Hawaii especially. Man, I, I, I love it when they bring that coffee. I love Kauai coffee. Man, I, I love to go to the Kauai Coffee Company. I love to get their coffee. Man, that's wonderful coffee. Man, and I'm going to confess my sin. It's not unusual. If I'm over there, I will drink eight cups of coffee in a day, and I'm still not wired up. Man, that's a wonderful thing. And if I'm wired up, I don't even know it. But there's one thing about coffee I don't like. I cannot take room temperature, lukewarm coffee. If you love lukewarm coffee, you need to get your heart right with God. Amen? Because I'm going to tell you right now, lukewarm coffee, I don't identify with that. I'm thankful one of our sweet ladies brought, brought some coffee by today, and she was boiling hot when she got it. By the time I got here to drink it, by the time I got to drink it, it became lukewarm. Now, I still drank it because I love the coffee. But, man, I'll tell you what, I, I would rather have hot coffee than lukewarm, than lukewarm coffee. But look what Jesus is saying here. So then, because thou art lukewarm. Lukewarmness is the state of indifference, apathy, complacency. Lukewarmness means you are unmoved. Lukewarmness means you're not excitable. You're not enthusiastic. You're kind of ho-hum, ho-hum. Lukewarmness means you're okay being status quo. Lukewarmness means you're neither cold nor hot. Lukewarmness means you're in a state of carelessness. You're the Christian who says, who cares? Who cares about prayer meetings? Who cares about revival meetings? Who cares about winning souls? Who cares about missions? The church of the Laodiceans, Jesus is telling them in no uncertain language, thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot. He says, you're not cold, you're not hot. I would rather you're cold or hot. I would rather that you're frozen or that you're fiery, but instead you are right in the middle. You are the who cares attitude. Nothing moves you. You're not excited. You don't move with a sense of urgency. You don't treat the ministry as if tomorrow Jesus may come. He speaks about the state of the church. But notice in verse 15, he speaks about the sickness from the church. I know thy works, verse 16, excuse me. So then, because thou art lukewarm. Neither cold nor hot. I will spew thee out of my mouth. If you've never underlined that, underline that tonight. Jesus said the church, the, the church of the Laodiceans made him sick. It made him nauseous. He got nausea. He said, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I want you to think with me for just a minute. That's pretty strong. So then, because thou art neither cold nor hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. I will spew thee out of my mouth. 
Now, he told the church at Ephesus, they left their first love. He told the church at Thyatira, thou hast that, thou sufferest that woman Jezebel to teach. He told the church at Pergamos that they tolerate the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. He told the church at Sardis, Thou hast a name, thou livest, yet thou art dead. But he didn't tell those churches that they made him sick. That doesn't mean Jesus prefers bad doctrine or bad practices or cold church over what we're seeing tonight with the church of Laodiceans. He said the state of lukewarmness is so disgusting and so revolting and so nauseous. He said, I'll spill you out of my mouth. When we're careless about the Lord's work, it makes him sick. When we're apathetic to tithing and offering, it makes him sick. When we don't care about prayer meetings, it makes him sick. When we don't care about coming to church on time and giving him our best, it makes him sick. When we're indifferent to sin, it makes him sick. We say, well, who cares? When the teachers and sponsors of this church who are extension of my ministry reach out to a young person and you're selective in your response and you don't get back to them, you know what you're telling them? Who cares? I don't care what your authority is. I don't care who you are. And I have a staff member in my name ask you to help serve an area, you don't give back to them, and your attitude is, who cares? Listen to this. It makes our Lord sick to his stomach. We're indifferent to souls going to hell. It makes our Lord sick. When we're indifferent to the need for missionaries, and faith promise mission support. We don't care. It makes him sick. Our attitude about the church in preaching and a desperate need for repentance. We don't care. It makes us say, hey, listen to me right now. For a lot of people, COVID 19 is an inconvenience. And you should be concerned because the handwriting's on the wall, my friend. God is using COVID-19 to get your attention and my attention, not as some fantasy, not as another statistical number, not to find out who's got it, but to realize this evening the judgment of God is on this world. And you say, well, you're an old fuddy-duddy. Where did you get that from? Read your Bible. 
Read your Bible. When a world, when people turn their faces from God and they worship their money, they worship themselves, they're demagogues to themselves, and they have other gods, education, institutionalization, their careers, their finances, even their own ministries and church. Let me tell you tonight, it's God getting a hold of the entire world is even to the local New Testament church right now. Because I want to tell you tonight, the local New Testament church is not being spared from COVID-19. Nobody's crying, what about God? Nobody's crying, we must repent of our sins. Nobody's crying out, we must turn to God. All I'm hearing from people is I wish this thing would get over real fast so I can get on with life. Let me tell you, you're not living unless you're living for Jesus. You are not living unless you're living for Jesus. For me to live is Christ. And Paul wrote that in a crisis. You're not living if you're partying. You're not living if you're drinking. You're not living because you're tweeting on somewhere. Look at me, I'm doing better than this other Christian. I've got this ministry. Who cares you've got that kind of ministry? What really matters tonight is do you care about what Jesus cares about? Your attitude is who cares and makes Jesus sick to his stomach. Then what you notice, Jesus condemns this church and he says, he speaks about their sickness and their state. What you notice in verse 17, his sadness from the church. I tell you one of the things I, one of the things God works in my heart about. I don't want to make people sad. I don't want to make my wife sad. I don't want to make children sad. I don't want to make my, I don't want to make my grand, my granddaughter sad. I don't want to make people sad. I, I, I don't want to do that. And Christian friend, I want you to notice verse seventeen. As Jesus is talking about the state of this church. This church made him sick. This church made him sad. Notice first of all, verse 17, he said, he was sad because of their boasting, because thou sayest. Now we need to get a handle on this tonight, church. What are you boasting about? What are you boasting about? Who gave you what you have? You know, we live in a day and age, and I, I think it happened during their time too. We live in a day and age where people are not repenting over their sins. And here's what the typical person does when they get caught. Their sin finds them out. They'll come to the preacher with a, the least appearance of contriteness. And the next question they want to ask, this is typical. Can I talk to brother so-and-so or can I talk to somebody else? And my first question is, wait a minute. Why do you want to talk to someone about what you did and you haven't talked to Jesus about it? There's no repentance there. You know what you're really saying? You want to find someone who can identify with what you did, who will pat you on the back and give you, basically give you consent. That is not contriteness. That is not repentance. Because thou sayest, 
These believers, as we look at verse 17, were boasting about their, their status. We boast about missing church. We boast about being in the ministry, not being in the ministry. We boast about our status. And so he was sad about their boasting. He was sad because they were beguiled. Because in the next statement he says, because thou sayest, I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. You know, notice what he said there? They were fooled. They were duped. They were deceived in their own minds. You see, you're the same way. If you've got money in the bank, your portfolio's doing good, you've got things to reserve, you've got reserves, all the things. You know what you're saying? I am rich and increased with goods. You think I've got enough to get me through. It's like all these people hoarding toilet paper and towels and water and all these things during this crisis. They're thinking, well, I'm better than someone else. You are beguiled. Here's the part brought Jesus to tears. They said, I have need of nothing. That's lukewarmness. Now, I don't know about you, but I have needs. I need more of Jesus. I need more of his word. I need to pray more. I need more church. I need to exercise more faith. I need more compassion. I need to go after more souls. I need to go on more missions trips. I need to preach his word more. I need to start more ministries. I need more of the things of God, not less of the things of God. He said tonight, because our rich increase with goods and have need of nothing. I don't need more meetings. And sometimes meetings are necessary evil for getting things done. You've been around me for any number of years. Whenever I get asked, do I need something? You know my phrase. I need more time. And I need the power of God. I need more of the Spirit of God. I need more of His power. I need more of His anointing. I need a freshness this coming week that, I, that, that, won't, that, that this past week will not help give me. I need more of Jesus. By the way, I need more Humility. I need more grace. He was sad because they were boasting. He was sad because they were beguiled. Hey, he was sad. Look at verse 70. He was sad because they were blind. They couldn't see their condition. They didn't realize they're groping in the dark. They had spiritual myopia. I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And Jesus said, thou art blind. Saddened because they were blind. Notice in verse 17, he was saddened because they were bare. He said, You're naked. There's shame associated with nakedness. The demoniac of Gadara was unclothed until Jesus got a hold of him. The Bible says, first thing, he was clothed and sitting. And his right mind. I used to wonder about the gospel of Mark there in chapter 15 when Jesus was arrested. Remember that story? It's only in God, Mark's gospel. God, Mark's the only one who saw this. 
There was a young man who, the Bible says he just had a cloak on or whatever there, and he says some young men came and took away his cloak and he ran away naked. And what I believe, uh, what happened there, I don't believe that he ran away bare naked, but I do believe this. He was basically, he was basically, in the, he had his, his inner, inner tunic on, and that was considered naked if you didn't have your outer tunic on. And I believe they took it from him. But I think the idea behind that was that it represented the shame of the moment. That everyone that left Jesus Christ, that was a shameful moment for every disciple. Listen, you read over there in the book of Isaiah, and I didn't have, I didn't have time to develop this when I was in Isaiah chapter 4 a few weeks ago, but it talks about God saying there that I will make thy thigh and thy leg bare. He's talking about nakedness. Nakedness in the Bible always speaks about the shame. You see, the worst testimony for a church is be a church who says who cares. The worst message to send to our communities is I don't care. And the notice he was saddened because of their blues. Look at verse 17. Now they said because we are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Then he said, he said, knowest thou not Knowest not thou, knowest not that, thou art wretched and miserable. Now, Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. Remember, he said, I know thy works. Wretched and miserable have the same idea, but two very strong words. You know who he's telling them? You're in a pitiable state. You know who he's telling them? Hey, church, listen. You're unhappy. If you come to church in a lukewarm mode, you're not happy. You want to get out of church. You don't want more church. You want to get out of meetings, not more meetings. You want to get out of commitment. You don't want commitment. You want to get out of prayer. You don't want more prayer. You want to get out of giving because you want less giving or no giving. You want to get out of hot preaching because you don't want any preaching. You're lukewarm. You're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. That's our, that's our challenge in living in American culture right now, this Western culture that's pursuing the goods of life. We want to be rich and increased with good because then we have need of nothing. It's interesting, the church of Philadelphia and the church of Laodicea represent the, our age that we're in. A church that is commended by God, who's going through the open doors, who's on fire for God, who sees the way and makes the way and follows the way. And then you have this other church who says, who cares? Because they're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. He said they were miserable and wretched. He said they were pathetic. And so we see the Lord, who's credible, the Lord in his condemnation. But you notice in verse 18, as we close tonight, would you notice the Lord in his counsel? The Lord in his counsel. He said in verse 18, I counsel thee. I might pull aside here <clears throat> a week or two and teach us as a church what is biblical counsel. I actually wrote a God morning devotion about that a 
a couple months ago. I don't think many of you read it. Counsel, biblical counsel, is spiritual advice from the commandments and the precepts of God. Now, you mark this down. God has an answer for everything in our life. Yes, he does. I said, yes, he does. He has an answer for everything in our life. He has a word of advice, a word of counsel. And this word counsel that's used in the New Testament, I just want you to stay in the New Testament for a moment. It's used, I think, five or six times. Aside from this verse here, all the other times, it's in a negative context where there's bad counsel being generated. He said, I counsel that you better get God's counsel, listen. Before you move, you better get God's counsel. Before you change that job, you better get God's counsel. Before you, before you do something major in your life, before you get married, before you do something. And by the way, counsel, let me say it again. Counsel is not getting consent to what you want to do. Majority of people want consent. They want approval on what they've already decided. Don't come to me if you just want consent. You've already made up your mind. Spare me the time. He said, I counsel thee. And the Lord has counseled. Would you notice the prescription in verse 18? Because as our Lord is speaking to them in verse 18, he's coming to them again as the great physician. Notice the first thing he says in this prescription is, buy of me gold tried in the fire. Let it sink in for a minute. Buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. Gold as a metal melts at 1,948 degrees Fahrenheit. 1,000, that's almost 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's hot. That's hot. In Celsius, it's 1,064 degrees. Listen to this tonight. The purest gold is gold that has gone through the fire. The remedy for lukewarmness, and you're not going to like this, the remedy for lukewarmness is that we must go through fiery trials to burn away the dross of sin in our lives. That's what he's saying there. I said, that's what he's saying there. Buy of me. Lukewarmness is going to cost you. You better listen to me tonight. Lukewarmness is going to cost you. Buy of me. It's going to cost you. Gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. True, listen, the best gold, the most expensive gold, the most valuable gold is gold that has gone through the fire. When the dross comes to the surface, the impurities come to the surface and is scraped off and all those impurities are removed. Listen, God may have to set trials and that's why COVID-19 is right now afflicting churches from meeting because God is trying to get our attention. He wants the dross to rise to the surface so he can scrape it off. Then he speaks about white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. The shame of thy nakedness do not appear. White raiment, it always speaks about purity and holiness. Wait a minute. 
This city was known for the black, black wool that was produced by a certain kind of sheep. He wants us to wear robes of righteousness. You know what he's talking about there? When we have a who cares attitude about holiness, we're struggling in our purity. Yeah. We have a who cares attitude about holiness, we're struggling in our worship. I'll tell you this tonight. If we don't have a proper concept of the holiness of God, we struggle in every area of our life because the essence, the, the greatest of the essences of God, his, his essence is holiness. Did you bow to his holiness this morning? Are you bowing right now? Your individual troubles because you do not bow to the holiness of God. Your marriage troubles are because you don't bow to the holiness of God. Your prayer troubles are because you don't bow to the holiness of God. Your service troubles and your people troubles is because you don't bow to the, ser- the holiness of God. Then he said in this prescription something else. He said, anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Well, this city was known for its gold. They were self-sufficient. And Jesus is saying, no. It's going to cost you. You better get rid of your self-sufficiency. This city was known for the production of its expensive garments and black wool. And he says, no. You need the white raiment I give you that thou mayest be pure. And this city was known for this powder it made is an eye remedy. He said, no. Anoint thine eyes with eye self so you can see. So you were blind. You see, I was reading the other day in John chapter 9 about that blind man. And Jesus took some dirt. He spit on the dirt. Remember that? He took in his hand the spittle mud. And he anointed the eyes of the man. The people knew in those days you have to anoint the eyes. You cover the eyes so they can see. Anoint thy eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. We need the Lord to touch our eyes. Quickly tonight, we see the Lord in his prescription and his counsel. He counsels us with prescription. Notice in verse 19, quickly, he counsels us with his passion. As many as I love, I want to tell you tonight, it's a little bit difficult in all these things I'm saying, especially on a resurrection Sunday, but I want to tell you tonight, God loves us. God loves you. As many as I love, thank God tonight he loves us. He tells us what we need to hear because he loves us. He wants us on fire. He said, I want you cold or hot. He said, if I have, if I have to choose the, of the two, I want you hot. I don't want you lukewarm. And he said in verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. That chastening is by of me gold tried in the fire. I hate to be rebuked. And so do you. But you know what? Paul told Timothy, as a young timid preacher, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. The Lord counseled them about their priority. Be zealous, therefore. I think he, as he's writing to them, the memory of Pastor Epaphras came to mind. He has a great zeal for you and for them at Hierapolis and them there at Laodicea. Zeal means to be burning hot. 
We're to be a people, according to, according to Titus 2.14, we're to be a people zealous of good works. Now you've got to get to the place, you're on fire for God. And it doesn't matter what the works are. Whether you're young or old, you should be glad to clean. You should be glad to serve. You should be glad to get, roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty. And you'll notice verse 19, that's an imperative, a command. Be zealous. You're writing your margin there. He means be red hot. Burning hot. And then he said, repent. The priority is to repent. We need to repent tonight. You need to get your fire back. Soon as church reassembles, many of you skipped out on so many, you need to get back to so many. Soon as we reassemble, before we even reassemble, you ought to get your prayer life right with God. You ought to get your Bible reading to place where you keep reading your Bible till your heart starts to burn. You need to start caring for people, caring for your church. Stop caring for your little pet committee there. Care for the things of God. Repent. Then notice in verse 20, he counsels us in patience. <laughs> Aren't you glad tonight Jesus is patient with us? Amen. Verse 20, we use this verse many times as an inv invitation for the gospel, and I believe you can apply that there. But I want you to remember that Jesus spoke to this church about the state of the church, and I want you to see tonight where Jesus is standing in relation to the church of the Laodiceans. Jesus is not on the inside looking out. He's on the outside trying to get in. Did you see that? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Listen, the Laodicean church means the church that the people rule. And the church of the Laodiceans has pushed Jesus out. They put him on the outside. And here's where Jesus is at. He said, I'm not going to force my way in. It's my church. But he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's knocking at the door of the church on the outside. Outside he's knocking. He said, would you let me in? That's a sad place to be. If you've ever been locked out of your house... And you've accidentally locked yourself out and your keys are in the inside. That's a bad place to be. You're knocking and pounding and ringing the doorbell and hoping somebody hears you to let you in. What a terrible thing that Jesus has been pushed up by his own church. And he's knocking on the door. And I want you to notice something. Holman Hunt drew that beautiful oil painting of this verse of Scripture. And when he first painted that picture, someone asked him, they said, this is a beautiful portrait, but where's the door handle on the outside? You forgot the door handle, Mr. Hunt. Holman Hunt said, no, I didn't forget the door handle. The handle was on the inside, and it was the responsibility of the one on the inside to turn the handle to let him in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and let me in, I will sup with him and he with me. You see, the lukewarm Christian, lukewarm church needs to listen very carefully 
as the Savior knocks. Let me in. And we'll fellowship. Just turn the door handle and let me in. I want you to understand tonight as we read that verse of Scripture, Jesus has been out there for a long time. And he's patiently knocking the door. You young people who are rebellious, you have a problem with standards, you give all the right answers, you say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, to the pastor, Mrs. Fong, but at home, you live like demons. Your parents are patient with you. But I'll tell you, Jesus is more patient with you. You won't exercise forgiveness. You won't repent of your sins. And every time the word of God is open and his word is preached, and every time someone lovingly reaches out to you, that's our Lord patiently reaching out, knocking at your door, waiting for you to open it up and let him in. Did you read verse 19, verse 20? He wants to have fellowship again. He wants you to invite him in to sit down at a meal because in the Eastern mentality, the best place to be was to sit at the table at a long period of time and have a wonderful time of fellowship. He says, if, you'll, if any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Hey, listen, the church at Philadelphia was the church of the open door, but the church at Laodicea was the church of the closed door. Jesus is asking his church for permission to let him in. That's sad. Jesus is asking his church to open the door. Now he can open it, but he's not going to force it open. He's not going to force it open. He said, if you let him in, he'll come in. Man, he'll have fellowship with you. But, and I'll tell you tonight, if you've lost that time of fellowship with God, tomorrow, this evening and tomorrow morning, get it back. Finally, would you notice Jesus speaks about a place. This counsel, he gives him a prescription. This counsel, he speaks of his passion. This counsel, he gives him a priority. In this counsel, he shows him he's patient. But I love verses 21 and 22. Verses 21 and 22 as I close. He promises a place. Would you notice this? To him that overcometh. Nikiao. Nike. To him that would be victorious. Will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and have sat down with my father in his throne? I believe Jesus is talking two things to us and we're done. One, I think he's talking to us about the place of privilege. When Jesus finished his work on heaven, here on earth, 40 days after he rose from the dead, you remember this in the book of Acts chapter 1, he spent 40 days of intensive training with the 11 disciples. Because 50 days from the day of Passover would be the day of Pentecost. He was counting down the days. He spent 40 days with them and after that 40th day, they tarried for 10 more days when the Holy Spirit of God in Acts chapter 2 came down on them. 
And his work was completed when he ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. You know, Jesus is telling us here in verse 21, it's a place of privilege. In those days, soldiers who overcame, the king gave him a seat at his table and especially at his throne. Those who overcame were allowed to give counsel and input. But more importantly, just to sit at the fellowship of that person. Years ago, we were at a, we had a missions trip, and we were training some preachers. And we were in the city of Hong Kong. And I don't know why they do this in foreign countries. It was kind of unusual to me, but I'm just a, I'm just a, I'm just a, I've got kind of a good old boy kind of mentality. And um, I noticed the young guys were sitting in one area, and the pastors, older men, were sitting together. And I had to work through translators, and the older men wanted me to sit with them, but I got a burden for some of those younger men. And so I asked Brother Mark Fang, who was on that trip, Brother Justin, I said, hey, why don't you go to these young men over here? I just kind of picked them out. Ask them if we can sit with them. And they picked those men out. They got to sit with them. One of them happens to be a young man by the name of Ted Mung. Ted could barely speak English. In fact, he couldn't speak any English. And the first question Ted and those young men asked me through Brother Mark, you're not supposed to be sitting with us. Pastors are supposed to sit with Pat. We're not, we're not worthy. So I said, well, you know what? We're going to sit at the table together. We're going to have a good time of fellowship. And I believe God used that in Ted's life. That's why he's a preacher right now. That's why he's a pastor. And Jesus said here, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. That's a privilege. But I want you to notice something else. He's not only speaking about a privilege, the place of privilege. I believe he's talking about the place of prayer. Look at this. Even as I also overcame and is set down with my father in his throne. Hey, you got to read the book of Hebrews to understand this. When Jesus sat down at the right hand of the father, his ministry today is as, is as our advocate with the father. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. He's praying for us. He brings our petitions to have the Heavenly Father right there. I mean, he's right there to tell God. I mean, he's right there to tell God the Father. And when you got saved, that throne of God before you got saved was a throne of justice and judgment because you stood before the throne of God as a condemned sinner. But thank God you got saved, amen. Thank God you got saved. And that throne of justice now is a throne of grace. It's a place of grace. And he beckons us in Hebrews 4, 16. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I believe he's talking about a place of prayer, a place where we can come before the presence of God and bring our petitions before him. I got good news for you tonight. 
There's a cure for lukewarmness. Amen? There's a cure for lukewarmness. There's restoration from lukewarmness. You can get your fire back. Amen? You can get your fellowship back. Amen? That's what he said there. Be zealous. You can get your feelings for the things of God back. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. If you'll open the door and let me in, I'll come in and sup with you and you with me. You can get your fire back. You can get your fellowship back. You can get your praying back. You can get your power back. He that hath an ear, let him hear. The Spirit saith to the churches. Lukewarmness? Who cares? It's a careless state. Indifference. Apathy. Carelessness. You're not above your spiritual authority. You're not above God. I would that thou were neither cold nor hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm. There's a price to pay. It's costly to remain a lukewarm Christian. The Lord is on the outside, patiently knocking. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. To every Christian watching tonight, Jesus is patiently knocking on the outside, asking you to let him in on the inside. You're not saved. You're not saved. You're not 100% sure you're going to heaven. He's knocking on the door of your heart. He cannot force his way in, and he won't force his way in. He's asking you to let him in. Now, we give you an invitation, but tonight you need to make the invitation. You need to say, Jesus, come in. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Save me tonight. I'm a sinner who needs to be saved. Christian friend, there's a cure for lukewarmness. There is a cure. To the church of the Laodiceans. Tonight I pray you get out of lukewarmness. It's so easy for us to become status quo, middle of the road, and happy with it, when in reality, we're miserable and wretched. We're not happy with it. And I think there's some people tonight, they're not happy with their condition. You just haven't been able to put your finger on it. But I'm going to tell you tonight, the Word of God put its finger on it and told us what we are.